Welcome to the Fat Fuel Family Podcast, where every week, Danny and Maura Vega discuss topics that help families live a healthy and active lifestyle with their little ones, including nutrition and training, peaceful parenting, education, and mindset. To stay up to date, make sure to hit subscribe on this podcast and check out the blog at www.fatfuel.family. You can also find them on Facebook and Instagram at dannyvega.ms, at fatfueledmom, and at fatfueledkids, and fatfueledfamily on YouTube. Enjoy the show. Hey guys, we want to take a minute to talk about a revolutionary idea that our friends shared with us in February that has completely changed our lives. For those of you who know us well or have been listening to us for a while, you know how much we love to travel. Imagine having a VIP four to five star travel experience at two to three star prices. Imagine getting paid to travel. Well, all of these things have now become our reality and we can't not share it with our listeners. Now that we know what we know, we will never pay full price on travel ever again. If you're interested in joining us and millions of other people who have been traveling the world and living their dreams, just email us at hello at fatfueled.family for more info. Welcome to the Fat Field Family Podcast. I'm your host, Danny Vega, and I'm joined by my Fitzbo wife over here. Oh, okay. I'm always wondering what's going to be the... uh, The adjective? The adjective, yeah. (laughs) So you, um, yeah, so you've been, you got your workout in today. I haven't gotten my workout in yet, um, but uh, happy to be here. We're super excited because we have someone who was introduced to us by our buddy, uh, Carlos Donis. Um, after serving in the amphibious recon in the Marine Corps, Tony Molina met Valerie and together they participated in the Discovery Channel's eco challenges. These eco challenges consisted of racing nonstop 24 hours a day over a rugged 300-mile course, participating in such disciplines as trekking, whitewater canoeing, horseback riding, sea kayaking, scuba diving, mountaineering, camelback riding, and mountain biking. As part of these races, Tony ended up in the jungles of Southeast Asia. There, he got incredibly sick with some sort of tropical disease, and when Tony arrived at the VA hospital, no one could make sense of what he had. As such, they flew in a tropical disease specialist who told Tony that he had one of three diseases. One, rabies the tropical disease specialist hoped it wasn't this because if it was that if it was this tony was going to die two malaria the tropical disease specialist hoped hoped it wasn't malaria because if it was that if it was then there would be nothing medically interesting about tony's illness and three leptospirosis uh the tropical disease specialist hoped it was this because that would make tony only the second known case on u.s soil of this disease and the doctor could certainly write a a paper on this the, the specialist got his wish. Tony had leptospirosis. Fortunately, the tropical de- disease specialist paper had a happy ending because Tony survived. However, although Tony survived, he was left with a series of lingering medical issues. Tony was cured, but not healed. Asking his doctors for help, Tony got nothing but shoulder shrugs. <laughs> what a surprise. <laughs> it was out of this experience that the Rewire Project developed. Medical science had succeeded in triage, but had failed to restore the kind of health that had allowed Val and Tony to compete at the highest possible level. Over the last two decades, Val and Tony have sourced the medical literature, searched for the latest technology, and worked with people all over the world to develop an approach that steps in where the traditional medical industry can do little but shrug their shoulders. When you come to the Rewire Project in Santa Monica, you're getting what two decades of Tony and Val relentlessly searching has uncovered that passed the highest possible test. Is it something they would use on themselves? 
Tony's living proof that the techniques that have been brought together at the Rewire Project can help your body rewire itself. And we're very excited to have him on. Welcome to the show and happy belated birthday, Tony. <laughs> hey, thank you. That's right. It was my birthday. <laughs> <laughs> yes, welcome to the show. Because, you know, when you have kids, you're, everything's about your kids, right? Oh, I know the feeling. My, well, Danny, actually. My birthday was canceled. Yeah, yeah, Danny, the minute our first was born, poor thing, his, his birthday was officially canceled since that day because my water broke on his 30th birthday. And so my oldest was born. He waited to get his own day, of course. But uh, Danny's February 3rd, and then Desmond is the 4th. So naturally, every year, I'm always so busy planning <laughs> the kid's birthday that we're like, oh, yeah, Danny, you want to go get a, like, a steak or something? Honestly, <laughs> it doesn't really bother me at all. I, I mean, think about it. We're celebrating just being born. So it's, you know, yeah. as a kid, I get it. But as an adult, yeah, um, that's okay. We have, we've had our, our, our birthdays, our good birthdays. Yep, yep. <laughs> awesome. Tony, well, we always lead off with the question, what is the most critical problem that you're currently trying to solve? Well, I'm, I seem to be a problem solver. So I would say that yeah. my answer to that is really, I guess the life's work that I've been working on, which is I call it the rejuvenation renaissance. I like it. And that is taking people from a managed care perspective where they externally, they source out their healthcare externally to whoever that is, and they adopt a self-managed model. So that conversion from managed care to self-management, I've coined the rejuvenation renaissance, which seems like it's timely based on that we're all going through this interesting new phenomenon that's occurring globally. So, you know, I think that's my answer is uh, getting people to solve their own problem, which actually I don't really see it as a problem. It's kind of more of a challenge when you really understand evolution and humans when it comes to lifespan. So, should I keep going? No, it's it's up to you. I mean, I, I, I love, first, let me just tell you, I love in your bio when we talked about um, the way you talked about it was really good because it's true. Like for triage, for surgery, for fixing acute problems, they got it figured out. But when it comes to looking at it exactly how you describe it, you know, pursuing health versus, you know, treating a symptom or, you know, throwing drugs at something you know, that's where we, we have a lot of work to do. You know, we, we, people don't, they're generally not aware of what makes them healthy. They're generally not aware of all the different ways they can use diet and lifestyle to um, improve their health and avoid going to the doctor. And like, for example, with us, when we wanted to go before the, the whole COVID thing, but let's say before, if we needed to go to an uh, urgent care with the boys, like scrapes, bruises, you know, dislocations, all that, you know, the, the, the urgent cares are packed with people who are sick. And, you know, that's, I don't think the way that it should work. I think it should be, they, they need to address, you know, immediate issues and, and people, but people go to the emergency room, they go to urgent cares to, to basically, you know, use them as doctors um, instead of focusing on these things that, that, that you were talking about. I used to moonlight with the job that was, I'd go to emergency rooms at hospitals and I would just ask people why they were there. <laughs> and I would do this around dozens of hospitals all throughout 
the L.A. County, Los Angeles city. And the majority of them, regardless of what they were there for, they would report chronic fatigue as a secondary symptom to what they were there for. Of course. The the things that they were there for were generally the things that I was treating people for individually when they would come to my life lab. Uh, And the name of it is actually the ARET Life Lab is the new entity that I work under. Uh, And so they would be there for whatever that was. They were there because they had, um, they had some kind of circulatory component. They had a skin condition. They had, they, uh, they had a musculoskeletal condition, like some type of, you know, they, they had uh, an ankle, a wrist, uh, a joint that was actually, you know, went through a stress. They were there for the things that ideally the, they innately can handle. And so I would sit there and I would just ask these questions and talk to all these people. And most people, they're very disconnected from their instinctive, primitive connection with themselves and what it means to be human. If you ask them, when's the last time they even touched the earth with their feet, they took their shoes and socks off. Generally, it's not that often, especially yeah. in society, yes. you know, with yeah. the way that we paved over the world with um, the asphalt. Yeah. So what you end up getting is people that have no choice but to rely on managed care to handle their health. It's not even their fault. It's just yeah. really how people were brought up, right? I was brought up in Koreatown here in Los Angeles. And my grandmother had TB. And so she was at the city of hope for like a year. So she almost died from TB. So her value proposition and her references were that every time I got sick as a kid, if I had a runny nose or a sore throat or whatever, I was sick. She thought that meant I was going to die. Yeah. 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 Of course. She was brought up. So I would get rushed to the hospital, Kaiser Permanente as a little kid. (laughs) Oh my gosh. What would they do? Well, you have a cold. There's nothing wrong. That yeah. your, your body's designed to do that. You have your two branches of your immune system, your innate and your adaptive immune yes. system. But because I wasn't breastfed, so my adaptive immune system wasn't good. And then I was given antibiotics every time I had a runny nose or a sore throat, which <sighs> my immune system right wasn't able to, to actually develop. So that's a cultural phenomenon that I grew up experiencing, just like everyone else that I now deal with and help or attempt to help. So culturally, most people are falling in some form of that as well if they've been brought up, you know, again, in westernized world, let's say. So you have a threshold. You can think about your kids. So you have your own internal threshold. So if you ask yourself right now, let's say one of your kids got a fever and the fever was growing. What temperature would it be that you would say, okay, game over. I've got to take him into the hospital. What would that be for you? 104. 104. Maybe 104, but 104, that doesn't. That, come that down, yeah, right? That, that persists. persists. Right. So you already have that threshold in you. Yeah. Which I honestly don't even know where I got that from. <laughs> right. So that's intuitive and instinctive. So that's primitive survival. So the fact that you already know that we didn't even have that discussion before this podcast, Yeah. how your threshold is set up. So when it comes to humans in their own health and how they are just moving around through life, their threshold is so low that when there's any form of what I call feedback, which most people would call pain, they generally go to their doctor. Right. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that they shouldn't go, but if you just back up and just pause for a second, what are they really going for? Well, they're going because they don't necessarily understand what's occurring in their metabolism. Yep. That's right. And the system has 
the, has the resources to be able to handle these things. We generally just don't allow ourselves the time to get there. So let me give you another example. Let's say you have, you have back pain. Okay. We, we like to talk about back pain because plenty of people can relate with it. Someone, you know, has some form of pain. Generally there's some, someone that, you know, a friend, a family, yeah. coworker, someone has back pain or has had back pain. So it's going to be the same process in terms of this threshold. So how long and how far does it have to go before someone's going to go ahead and medically get it looked at? That's going to be, it's going to be different for each person, but the threshold generally for the, again, the, the person who's been brought up in this environment, this society, this culture, it's going to be real short lived, especially if the back pain doesn't go away. Right. And you, you understand it instinctively. Acute pain makes sense, right? If you fall and you injure yourself, whatever, you ride your bike, you fall, you have, you have road rash, it hurts. That's acute. You clean it, it scabs, it heals. If the pain doesn't go away, though, days and weeks goes by, you think something's wrong, which makes yeah. sense, because, right? It should go away. So then you generally are going to go to your, your primary care physician or your medical provider, whatever system you have. You're going to have it looked at because that threshold, once again, has been reached where you're like, well, why is it not gone? This scab should have healed. Why do I have pain? And then you go and next thing you know, you're getting an x-ray and your elbow is broke. And then you go, oh, I have a broken bone. <laughs> so we're always looking to validate our belief systems around what it means because at all points of the day, all you're trying to get done is maintain homeostasis and balance. It doesn't matter what it is you think you're doing. You might be eating one way, exercising another way, but all your system wants to do is survive and it wants the systems to be balanced. It's looking for homeostasis. So you go to your doctor because your elbow hurts and now you find out it's broke. So then it meets your model because of how you were brought up culturally. You go, yes, A equals B because my elbow's cracked. Here's the x-ray to prove it. And now you feel better. But nothing's still changed. You still haven't addressed the causation. <laughs> So that's our model. That is our, that's our managed care model. Now, if, you, if you're laying in the VA with leptospirosis and the infectious disease specialists from UCLA, which was the top in the country, who would have known that the VA has the best infectious disease specialists in the world? That's, that's interesting. Wow, wow, that is interesting. <laughs> so I'm laying there like a dog with a, with a blanket over my head because I can't handle the light because I've kind of got rabies is what I think I've got. And he says to me, well, yeah, you're going to die if you have rabies. And so my wife's crying because he has bed, bad bedside manners. <laughs> I'm laying there just shaking with a violent headache, and I can't open my eyes because of the light. And he goes, well, but if you have malaria, you'll be good. You'll just have it the rest of your life, but it'll come and go. But maybe you might have the first case of leptospirosis, which should be really exciting because I can write a paper about it. And you're right about the bedside manner. Golly, he's excited about it. <laughs> and they did write a paper about it. It was uh, done at a conference in San Diego at the I think American College of Sports Medicine. Um, and anyway, but the reality though is, is right in that moment, if I wouldn't have had modern medicine, I would have died. But because I have it, I had IV drip antibiotics with... Um, doxycycline, which was what saved the liver because it attacks the liver and the kidneys. And I didn't need to go on dialysis. And so some friends of mine from France who were in that same race, which is in Borneo, Malaysia, they were in the hospital. A couple of them almost passed away, but they made it. So the point being, that's when medicine is critical. And then in our country, we have the best medicine there is in the world. When you're dying of leptospirosis, when you're bleeding out and you have you know, you have a, uh, 
you know, you need a tourniquet. Yep. But when you're dealing with all the musculoskeletal com, um, disorders, the musculoskeletal injuries that I deal with every day, when you're dealing with postural disturbances, which generally just manage um, that are, that are, that are dealing from skewed sensory input, then most people are just running around managing symptoms yep. and they don't even understand that they're managing symptoms. So really what it seems like needs to go on is people need to be taught a new system for what it means to be human, how to have a reference around it, and then how to triage and take care of themselves. Yeah. yeah. First of all, um, I feel your pain, man. I'm, we're both Cuban American. Um, I'm the first generation born in this country, uh, you know, in Cuba, you would feel sick. You go to the pharmacist, you get antibiotics. And, you know, my dad did the same thing. Not only did he put me on antibiotics and then my mom was afraid to nurse. So I didn't get that either, which, <laughs> you know, we nursed both, you know, my wife nursed both our kids. And then, you know, sometimes he would put me on antibiotics for just a few days. You know, he was like, you know, changing everything he thought. He, and so it's the culture too. It's like, again, it's like slap a bandaid on it, but it's not that it's like, remember we were talking about this, like our parents, they came from Cuba. Right. And when they were, when they were, you know, growing up and, and all that, like medicine farm, like all this stuff was new. So yeah. for them, it's like doctors to our, to our Cuban family, doctors are like the final, the, the final, final answer, final authority for every single thing. And that's just how, how, you know, cause for them, it's like the best thing since sliced bread. Yeah, no, I, I, I totally agree with, I love that you're taking that approach because you know, it's so empowering to people. First of all, yeah. Um, you get like you talk about like the lack of feedback, the lack of body awareness, the lack of just you know any type of um, background knowledge on on what makes us healthy and what prevents disease. Right. Like that's a huge, huge, huge issue. issue with us, and that's something that we need to work on. Um, I wanted to ask you because you mentioned France, and then when I heard you say the Aret Lab, is that Aret like like the French word? Yeah. So Aret actually in Greek means excellence. Okay. When you're climbing, because I do a lot of expeditions around the world to altitude with people, uh, when you're climbing, as climbers would look at the word aret, it means the, the thin line ridge between two faces. Oh, okay, oh, okay. Because cool. I, I know in French, aret means stop, I think. Or, yes, yeah. yeah. Yes, so that's true. This is, uh, this is the Greek, you could look at it as a Greek interpretation and or the climbing definition and the synergy between the two. I love it, man. Well, you know, let's let's go back to this because, you know, you're a Marine and uh, just like Carlos, our mutual friend, Carlos. And, you know, when Carlos got out, he got sloppy. He gained a bunch of weight. And when he decided to clean things up, he also committed to his first marathon, which that's what made him fall in love with endurance and then ultra endurance events. And I'm just kind of curious. How about you? Like, were you always into fitness or was it your time in the Marines that got you into it? What, what kind of, um, what's your background in, in all of these things? Like, you know, all the outdoor stuff that you love to do and all the, you know, just combining these, these, um, these different things that are based more on movement and less on, you know, walking into a box and lifting a weight and then, you know, getting on a cardio machine and all that. I started off as a rock drummer. I thought I was going to, <laughs> I wanted to be like Neil Pert. I used to study, awesome. I used to study Buddy Rich, who was a, He's one of the best drummers of all time. And I would go with my drum teacher in high school. I would sit in the front row at Disneyland in California and I would sit with the manuscript and a pen and paper. And I had to write the, the notes to the drum solo. And he would do at that time, Buddy Rich would do a 30 minute drum solo just on a snare drum. 
Wow. Which was insane. And so I was this young guy sitting there feeling pressured because I didn't grow up with a father. I grew up with my mom and my grandparents. So the male role model figure I had at that moment was my drum teacher. He was older. He was probably in his 60s. He was a jazz fusion drummer and awesome. a you know, studio musician. And he was like, look, you, know, you can play whatever you want. You can play any kind of rock music you want. I don't care. But you're going to learn the craft of what it means to be a musician if you're doing this instrument and that happens to be drums. So we're going to go and you're going to study it properly. And I was just, you know, I was just a kid going to a drum lesson. So we would go and sit there and I would have to write up this music. And it was like insane. And I couldn't write it, but then I started to learn it. And then we would do pieces of it and I would build off of it. So no, I had zero connection with um, exercise, fitness, movement. I was, um, I was, you know, introverted in junior high and high school. I had my long hairs trying to go to my Van Halen rock concerts. <laughs> I was a rock drummer and I had no context because I had no model that I had all this capacity and ability uh, athletically. So I didn't do all the things I wanted to do, which I had, I had my son do. I didn't, I started uh, judo, but I really wanted taekwondo, but I didn't do that because I didn't follow through because my mom didn't give me the, that, that concerted cultivation to follow through. So I had my son who's 18. He just, he's graduating high school. He's a black belt in taekwondo and he teaches here in LA. That's awesome. Very cool. Right. I didn't do water polo because I was too scared because I was small. I thought my stature, I'm like, well, I'll never survive in the water because I'm not a good swimmer. So I didn't do any water polo. So sure enough, I had my son who was at uh, an all boy college prep high school. He did two years of water polo and then he was on the swim team for two years. Um, and so he's doing that. <laughs> so then that took me to, okay, my biological father was in the army in Vietnam. I, I never, I didn't know him. I didn't grow up with him at all. And I had zero interest in the military, zero. The last thing that was going to happen was any military. But I did know that I needed to leave my house to have some new reboot, if you will, I didn't know what that was. College wasn't it. I didn't I really understand it. And so I ended up taking a, a plunge, which really was a good catalyst that started me off in a good way. And that was going into amphibious reconnaissance in the Marine Corps. And then I went in and actually did, uh, I was in the first Gulf War in 1990-91. I was a recon team leader there. We liberated Kuwait City and did that whole thing. But during that process, I discovered how once I could focus my mind and if I was committed, that I could actually outdo everybody. And so I was graduating the honor man, not just from the boot camp, the starting process, but every single school I went to, I was the top guy for the next four and a half years. And that wasn't because I was the best, not at all. I was small. I was not fast. I was not even strong. I don't think any of the things that I, if I look at it now, I literally, though, created a new habit. And the habit was I gave 100%. And I didn't know what 100% was because I'd never even given 5%. But I learned, though, that most people, they quit in that last 10%. Yeah. So yeah. I had none, no capacity and no reference other than I would just, I literally, I remember specifically telling my mom, I was in scuba school, Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, going to Navy, U.S. Navy dive school. Wow. And I remember there was, it's called, it's called pool week and you go to the pool and they basically just drown you and you got oh alive. If you can just stay alive, you become a U.S. Navy diver. It's the hardest dive school in the world. It's the best scuba program there is period, hands down. 
is the U.S. Navy dive program. There's two programs. One's in Florida. You probably know that one. And the other one's in Pearl Harbor, yeah. Hawaii. So I was a recon Marine in Hawaii. And so we went to dive school in Hawaii. That's a significant rite of passage. In fact, it's so significant. The Marine Corps sends you through a pre-scuba week. So as a recon Marine, before I can even go to scuba school, I have to go through a pre-scuba school because they want to make sure that we're even better than what's required to get into scuba school. Because when you get there, you're going in with the Navy SEALs as well. And so the quick history on it, because I don't really like to spend time on it, but it seems like we need to because everyone's so focused on the damn SEALs, (laughs) (laughs) is is in Vietnam, the UDT program, Underwater Demolition Team program, was created from the Navy because the U.S., the recon Marines couldn't, there wasn't enough of them to go around to be utilized in the Navy. So Navy created their own department, which was initially called UDT, and the recon Marines trained them to create their own program, hence the Sea, Air, and Land program, commonly now referred to as SEALs. So for all those people that are out there that are super focused on that concept, because that's like a different life for me, I don't really connect with it anymore. The actual real first guys, the real guys, are the recon Marines. That being said, back to scuba school. So in scuba school, they drown you for those five days. The recon and SEALs all come together, and you're all, you do the same program for 30 days. And in there, during dive week, I remember specifically, they, I wasn't going to make it. Because they, it doesn't matter who you are. When you're cold and wet, and you're, you're underwater and you're hypoxic, it doesn't matter your skill set, your strength. <laughs> they, they have you. you you're you're going to drown. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you just, you, you either decide, this is how I saw it, and this is really what it's like. You either decide that you're willing to basically die for the cause or you're going to make it. And so that's what I did. I, I was laying in bed the night before the final testing in dive, week, dive uh, uh, pool week, in bed and I was literally laying there. I, I don't, I didn't have a Harry Mon brown, but I would guesstimate I was at one thirty to one forty-five pulse laying in bed oh at two in the morning, pouring sweat with a massive sympathetic over arousal of stress activation. Cause my, my system, my brain knew that I was about to die. I was scared to death. This is, I'm not even in the pool of what was coming, right? That's anxiety. So then to get through that, I remember I had to specifically, have a conversation with myself, which wasn't formal. It was, was, you know, subconscious, but I remember said to myself, I said, okay, I'm either going to make this day or I'm just, I'm not going to make it, you know, but I'm not going to stop. And, and that's because I committed everything into it at this point. And it really was on the edge of, I couldn't consciously see that I could do it. And so if you can't see that you can actually achieve something, how are you supposed to move forward? There's, there's no path. There's no, it's like a chasm and you can't see the bridge across it. So I'm standing there and I have to jump, call it 30 feet across the gorge. Well, I can't jump 30 feet. And I know that I have no choice because in a couple hours, I'm going to have to make the jump. So how am I supposed to make the jump? So I'm sitting there all night trying to figure out how am I supposed to make this jump of 30 feet? And I cannot figure it out. And at, I was 19, whatever. I, don't, I didn't know how I did it, but the way I did it is I just surrendered. That's what I know now. Yes. I just released control and I just said, okay, well, I don't have the answer. So I just did it. 
Well, so I ended up graduating scuba school and became a U.S. Navy diver. And then they punched the badge into my chest because that's what you do. You put a white shirt on, they line you up against the wall, and they punch the badge in. And that's the rite of passage if you're going to wear the, the scuba medallion on your uniform. That was as hard as that last day. <laughs> that and is wow. That, that process, though, of commitment without knowing and that surrender, right? And that, that process, that is the key component. You don't have to have that answer, but I had to commit. And so I did. And I, I threw all caution to the wind and then I crossed the chasm without understanding and seeing the bridge. When you look at, I've lost my track a little bit because I'm already thinking of the virus, but it brings me to the virus. When you look at the people that are running around now that are nervous and scared, it's because they don't have control and something to hold on to. And without something to anchor and hold on to, well, then we have fear. So what you have is people running around in a fear response. Yeah. You can't have an intellectual calculated conversation with someone when they're in fight or flight. That's what you have. And then the bigger challenge is we have, we have our medical community making decisions for the public health response based on their own assessment of being in fight or flight. Yeah. You can't make a decision when you're in fight or flight. Yep. Yeah, you're, you're reactionary. You're not able to respond. I mean, yeah. this is all such amazing stuff because wow. it gets into the mindset piece, which yeah. we'll definitely get into later. But um, I love how you, you mentioned um, <laughs> the, the prep week because that's something that they're doing for BUDS now too for the last several years where they're, they're doing like a pre-BUDS school that, that people can go to. So they're, they're trying to prepare them. And I don't know if that's an indicator that we're just not where we used to be <laughs> from a mindset standpoint you know, as a country. But um, this whole idea about like not knowing what's going to happen, you can you can do one of two things. You can either say to yourself that I'm not going to be able to do this, and then and then it affects all of your your whole physiology, or you can be that person that says um, I don't know how to do this yet, but I'm going to find a way. And 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 just knowing that you'll find a way, even without knowing um, that that's huge. That's a huge piece to it. Like that, that, and you mentioned the, the, the other thing that I loved was the, that we all quit. And, and that's one thing that I love about David Goggins. He talks about how most of us quit at 40% and there's a whole other 60%, but it has nothing to do with our physicality. It has nothing to do with where we are physically. It has everything to do with our mind and, and putting yourself consistently in these positions that make you uncomfortable and make you make you get creative and make you have to solve problems. That's the, I feel like at least for me, and that's what we want to do with their kids is, is put them in these positions so that they can be more resilient. So they can be more anti-fragile, all that good stuff. There's so many, there's so many uh, ways we could go right now with all this. I'm just going to say a couple of thoughts. One is there's, there's two approaches to looking at these Uh, things we're discussing. One I'm thinking of is the approach of either you're in an ego orientation and then ideally you move towards a mastery orientation. And generally when you're younger, you're dealing with an ego orientation. And then as you progress and you mature and you, you gain wisdom, you evolve. Ideally, hopefully you evolve and you gain, you get to a mastery orientation. Well, with a mastery orientation, you make different decisions than when it's an ego orientation. So how many people would you guess that if you're in your thirties, let's say, are still in a ego orientation. I would probably say 90%. Yeah, most probably. What about you think if you get to your forties? Um, I don't know if it's, I don't even know if it's a, 
I don't even know if it's a um, if it's an age it's, thing because I would still say it's pretty high in general. I think most people do not have a mindfulness practice, yeah, so I most like people aren't aware of the the fact that their egos is is they're a slave to their ego. So they they feel it's it's all about me, and it's not even like it's not only just a selfishness standpoint. It's just like a an inability to open up and and um, like you said, surrender. And I don't know if that's an age thing. I know that I'm sure with, with age usually comes some wisdom just because of challenges that you go through. Uh, but I, I just don't, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if it's an age thing. So you think most people are still in an ego orientation? Based on what I see. Uh, I feel like most people are probably in ego orientation indefinitely unless they make a conscious effort to get out of it. And see, we have habits state. in place. Another part of this is that we, we, so you, I'm not sure how, how old you guys are. So I'm, I just turned 52. So I'd be dead already. I'd be dead about two decades ago. So let's just say roughly 30 is about what you'd be living physiologically if we backed up time. And part of our challenge is just that, is that now that you're able to live, you know, we've handled sanitation, we've handled hygiene, we've handled shelter. Now we have new problems. So we've right. handled all these great things, and yet you still don't have the, the processes to handle cellular repair for your body to handle you living without all these symptoms that people manage in their health. So then you're living with them. So now you're talking about someone's in an ego orientation. They are dealing with whatever they're dealing with. They're taking one to two medicines. They have one musculoskeletal component. Let's say they've had a knee thing that's going on. Mm-hmm. They have anxiety whatever the, you can go down the list. There's an endless list that people yeah. are doing. And yet they don't, they don't have the actual resources for the body to then make the change. So then they kind of get stuck in that managed care process because well, what else are they going to do? So we have to give them that people need a system. It's not about diet and exercise. It's actually getting to the, can, for them to connect that they need to adopt their own self social self-care strategy, not because it's cool, not because it's a fad or a trend, because it's yeah. instinctive and it's primitive, and that's what you do as a human. In fact, if you want to go further, I can now judge a little bit. So if you're walking around and you see people in a, in a, they're pushing a shopping cart, what percentage of people are leaning forward on the shopping cart to rest <laughs> Oh, oh my, my goodness, gosh. Yes. Now I'm going to like notice this forever. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's going to bother me now. Yeah, most. Why is it that they are not even able to go get the food that's going to put them more in probably type 2 diabetes? Yeah. Anyway. So one third of what you eat keeps you alive and the other two thirds keeps your doctor alive. So here they are <laughs> leaning over their carts. They don't even have enough oxygen to manage normal metabolic function at, at sea level. And then they're going to go ahead and ingest the extra calories. It's going to confirm that they need the managed care in the first place. Right. So what, who's really to blame? So you can look at, it's really a cultural thing. Yes, it is. People don't have a, they're not lazy. People need to actually be able to shift the culture. So, okay. So how are we going to shift the culture? Well, again, I think it's back to someone needs to lead this thing. It's a fragmented industry. I've been in the industry call it whatever, call it the health and fitness industry. I've been in it for you know half my life. It's way fragmented. And I used to spend so much time trying to recreate and duplicate myself. And I ended that. And that was that last business, which is what you introduced me as. And so I ended that because I couldn't duplicate myself. 
So now I don't want to duplicate myself because I already tried over and over and it didn't economically work. But in life, we kind of focus on things that economically work. So Tony, your system doesn't work because economically it doesn't work. Well, that's not actually how it works. How it works is if you can, as a human, run well, if you have good heart rate variability, if your ventilation system, your respiratory system runs well, because that's our limiter in our physiology, that's why the virus attacks the respiratory system. If you have a good balance of parasympathetic, sympathetic system, means your rest and digest and your fight or flight systems, your hormone stress response is healthy and you have love in your life and you can create that and you have something to hold and squeeze like a cat or a dog or a kid, (laughs) you're doing great. Yeah. But people don't have that. So then what do we have? We have a system that's set up to support the, the, the triggers really and the symptoms. So then we're just running around doing our best as a bunch of animals managing (laughs) symptoms. So what you're seeing really is just self-medication, different forms, whatever it is, gambling, overeating, overexercising, keeping ourselves busy with work and career. When we're getting farther and farther away from our ancestral instinctive past, once again, when's the last time people have just taken their shoes and socks off and walked in the sand or the dirt? When's the last time they've laid bare chested straight down in the dirt and grounded themselves? Yeah. When's the last time they've actually consciously have done breath work not because it's cool and there's a bunch of great techniques out there, but because the respiratory system is limited because you go to an ER room like I used to do at the emergency rooms and I would run around with a pulse oximeter. I would just check people's oxygen saturation at sea level and they weren't even at 98%, which is oh generally what you get. Yeah. They're just hypoxic just sitting there. Well, of course they're going to have symptoms. They have chronic fatigue because their system just can't handle the normal metabolic demand, which is, generate enough oxygen to handle metabolism. So we've kind of got, there's some real basics that just are being passed because we have a lot of different agendas. And what we need to do is we need to slow down and systemize and it needs to be a clear path. So I call that the rejuvenation renaissance. Well, first of all, we love that. And, you know, both my wife and I start our days with uh, meditation. We like to do it in our sauna because it's just, again, like, I, I, yeah, it just like, I remember when I used to sit and and it was nice and pleasant, but then when I got into the sauna, I would feel the heart rate rise. I would feel the blood pressure go up. And then it got to that point where I had to surrender. And now doing my breathing and my meditation in the sauna is like, I I'm spoiled. Like, I don't, I don't want to do it outside of the sauna (laughs) for that reason. And we got everybody's mouth breathing. You know, nobody's, nobody's breathing through their nose. Nobody's doing diaphragmatic breathing. And that's a major part of the whole parasympathetic, sympathetic, you know, um, you know, piece there, because, you know, we're, we're, we're taking these short, you know, shallow breaths. Um, I think I remember reading that our, our, our breath, uh, we used to breathe, you know, humans, like maybe seven, eight breaths per minute. And it's literally double that on average. Like, unfortunately I look at my, my, uh, aura ring. And, you know, I'm, I'm usually at 12, 13, you know, and I consider myself pretty, pretty in shape. That's probably realistic to expect that a lot of people would probably fall in the same category as you're describing. A great thing that people can take from this right now and they can do is you, they can do a simple one minute heart rate variability check. I do it on everybody I meet. Just lay down, put your hand on your stomach and close your eyes and just breathe for a minute and see how many times your stomach rises in one minute. 
ideally you should be, it should rise six to 10 times. There was a guy I met yesterday. He came, comes in, he has high blood pressure. His resting pulse is over a hundred. He's got, uh, he's had two back surgeries, one neck surgery, and he's here for bone density because I deal with a lot of different modalities to help with human function. He was breathing 25 times. Wow. Lying wow. down. That was his lying resting. Wow. resting That's ventilation. resting. That's like Imagine. he's cycling uphill while he's lying down. Yeah. Wow. And then you add exercise to that. That's how someone could just like drop dead while they're running a marathon. Yeah. He's yeah. redlined. He's already laying down. And what's what's yeah. he going to do if he goes to the hospital? What's the what's the care provider going to give him? They're going to tell him to exercise because his blood pressure is high. But he's going to he's he's contraindicated. Like he can't even exercise. So we have to you know we have to have a system for these things, and people need to understand it's a greater context than just well I work the muscular system and I focus on the cardiovascular system. Because we have to focus on the respiratory system. The respiratory system is our limiter. It's the rate limiting step in human metabolism. And there's no system around it. So I started to work with Panoe, P-N-O-E. And in Greek, it's pronounced, I think, Phanoe. It stands for breath. And Phanoe is a way to actually assess your total metabolic cardiovascular system. It's done in two stages, a 12-minute lying down, resting metabolic rate assessment, and a 9 to 12-minute activity assessment where you like run or bike or skate. And the, that data is sent in, and the respiratory physiologist, the team, give you your actual metabolism data and how you should eat and how you should move your body so you can actually address the limiter. So every human that either that walks and breathes oxygen, which is most people you and I know, they need to ideally should get assessed via a Pinoy system. That would be the best version we could do right now, I would say, would be to, people should be lined up to get their respiratory system assessed. And then we can actually start to get some control and influence and improve our actual function not focus on one system or another, but actually truly affect metabolism. That's really where it's headed. And that's really ideally where we can systemize so people can actually get control, have power, not manage symptoms, and start to capture connection again back with that instinctive primal survival. Wow. Yeah. I love that. I love everything about that. We are totally on the same page. Um, now, I want to talk about a little bit about comfort zones because you know, we're huge fans of getting out of your comfort zone and trying new things. Um, so, uh, because that's where all the growth comes and we do this with our boys all the time. You know, that's how we build resilience. Is this something that you focus on at the rewire project? How well, now we know it's, a, it's, it's now it's what's it called again? Yeah, it's not, it's the Aret life lab. The Aret Okay. Life we're going to fix that so that <laughs> we can put it in the show notes. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like how, how, how do you focus on, on, you know, building resilience and what are some, some of the things that, that, uh, you do when it comes to getting out of our comfort zones? Well, we have to quickly go over, at least, um, we have to talk about stress axis. So your mother's side, hands down your hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, that's your major stress axis, the HPA axis. There's a secondary stress system but we'll focus on the main one. That's the major one that you'll, you can read about, you can talk about. Most people address, if people get adrenal testing because they've got uh, 
you know, they got chronic fatigue and their adrenal, adrenals are fatigued. That's through the HPA access. So your mother sends down to you whether your access is going to be uh, a standard access or if it's going to be overactive. And a lot of people can have an overactive stress access or stress response. Yeah. So my system actually has, I have an overactive stress response. That means the catecholamines, the stress hormones, they don't pulse as someone else would. They actually, I get, I can get flooded with them. So the, the answer is most people, you actually are genetically wired to either be vulnerable or resilient from birth. You can train resiliency. It doesn't stay. You can train it. So that's what I call fear extinction or stress inoculation training. <laughs> so then the okay. way you take on for people, kids, adults, humans, whatever, however you want to look at it, you would actually train the stress system. And you do that through a, a ramping effect that induces stress into the system so that the, the, the system itself doesn't flood the body with the hormones. It just will pulse. And you can do that. And you can do that in different ways. The general ways that I have done it over the years is I use two mediums. One, I use the ocean because it's cold, there's immersion, and there's unknowns, and there's waves. You can get eaten out there. You're not, you're not the uh, predator. You're the you're one being preyed on. Mm-hmm. And the waves can take you out. So you're, yeah. you're constantly having to survive. And there's no way to – you can't just stand there because you're generally treading water. Or we take people off the ground and we deal with gravity. And that's where you can look at things like climbing. So a great way to train the stress axis, the HPA axis, and to train resiliency could be to go to a climbing gym. It could also be to go to the ocean and deal with just body surfing in the waves. And if it's done consistently, and if it's done with greater intensities that are just gradually increased, now you're creating a resiliency state for maybe a human that was vulnerable. It won't stay, but it can, it can hold for a while, and then you might have to just give it a little tune-up again. So maybe it starts with something like once a week, they do a stress inoculation dose, whatever that means for them. Then over several months, they maybe only need it once every couple weeks, and then eventually maybe it's only once a month, and then eventually it's once a quarter. So it's not like they have to do it every day or even every week, but initially it has to be done regularly enough with enough increase in intensity so that the actual chemical processes themselves within the HPA access retrains a response instead of a reaction. I, love I, love that. I mean, that's perfect. Goes in line with like even psychology when, when people are, are being, you know, treated and going through therapy for, you know, certain fears and anxiety and things like that. Like they, you know, one of the best ways to do that is you got to face it, you know? And, um, I, I absolutely love that. I think that's that's really important. Again, like it's it goes back to what we talk about with, you know, consistently, um, whether it's you know if you have if you have no resiliency, then you know obviously like you said more often. But then there have to be those consistently um, just those challenges where you just kind of keep yourself on point. You know, you, you you know we always have this saying like with the boys, winners don't lose, they learn, and you know we always try to look for opportunities where how did you fail today? You know, how, how did, you know, what went wrong today? And that's, that's, we're actively searching for it. Whereas if you notice like the culture is usually the opposite, like they want to shelter the kids from, from those things. Um, yeah. I have a I, question for you. Yeah. Yeah. You, you, you guys have how many kids? Uh, a, Two boys. Yeah. Six and a nine-year-old. 
Okay, and do they play sports? They both do jujitsu. And how far is the jujitsu studio from where you live? Uh, probably like a twenty-five minute drive. Drive, yeah. So what is that in miles roughly? Uh, I would say it's probably like five or six miles. Oh, okay, five or six miles. So it's not that far. That's no, a long time in the car. That's traffic. Then. Yeah, it's traffic. It's traffic. <laughs> That's not traffic. Okay, so five or six miles. Okay, so here would be a way to treat train resiliency, which you're, we're all going to have a lot to say about it. So a way to re- train resiliency would be is you you would drop your kid off at jujitsu and then say just get home. Oh, and yeah. you'd be like, oh yeah, home, and you'd be like, well, just walk home. It's not that far. So the challenge is it's hard to train resiliency in that construct because, well, it wouldn't make sense to the kid. The kid would feel what? Probably abandoned by you. Yet you would get the goal met of being resilient because the kid would have to figure it out. He's got to get home. He probably knows the way. And you could, you could show him numerous times until he's like, yeah, I know how to get home. You wouldn't have to tell him. Don't, don't even tell him you're going to drop him off and do that. You could prep him for weeks and months until you're like 100% sure he knows exactly how to go from the jujitsu studio to your house. And then you go, okay. And one day you just, without prepping him, you just go, okay, you're walking home today. You go, he's going to go, what? You go, well, we have to go, blah, blah, blah. And you just leave him. And he walks home. Well, he's going to feel abandoned. He's going to have a whole bunch of processes. So this is the challenge of, let's say, conventionally training resilience. It doesn't really work that way because he's going to be conflicted. So then you're back to, we've handled these processes of survival, right? We're back to, we've handled you know, shelter and hygiene and sanitation. So how do you train resiliency when you're we're growing up in these populated, you know, our society? It yeah. sounds so simple. So we have to get back to the basics, right? Now we're back to, again, getting them reconnected with instinct and primal aspect, right? So then this is where we can use tools, things like temperature, right? So you're talking about a sauna, extremes of temperature at the both ends of the spectrum, heat and cold, yeah. trains resiliency separate from the metabolic functions that it helps with or potentially helps with it's training resiliency, which is innate to the human. So now it brings me to talking about human needs and all the people that are running around managing different, again, crises, different disorders, whatever it is they're managing, whatever it is they're managing. (laughs) The, The innate needs of the human need to be met. And then the resources we have are innately within us to use to handle them. We've just lost sight of that and we've lost touch with that. So that's really, I think, the way you get it handled. So there is a bit of a process to it. Hence, again, we need to bring together this this fragmented approach, which is, you know, like kind of what we're doing now. Like here we are doing this podcast. It's a fragmented thing. We need the cultural shift to be occurring which is going to take things like this, like we're doing, and more to bring it together so we can all collectively make a shift in culture, not on actually how we do it, but just the culture itself is different. And then it will get handled for us. That will change our dynamics of life. It means that, well, you might not need the things you need. You're not going to be having the prescriptions you have. You probably aren't going to have a membership to some place, whatever that is. Well, yeah. you're going to be dealing with it differently. But who wants to get that uncomfortable and live that way? Yeah. That's so there's a lot of bigger questions around the realities of actually what it is we think we're asking we like, I think. I agree. And it's so funny that you actually used that specific example of the boys walking home because, well, we homeschool the kids and we follow um, 
John Taylor Gatto is, he used to be a, a school teacher in New York and he's huge with the uh, unschooling movement. Um, and he told a story once about Richard Branson and well, we all know how the story ends. Richard Branson is a gazillionaire. He has his own private Island. He's a very successful person, but he told a story about when he was four years old. Okay. You're literally telling me this story. And of course my, my mom heart, I'm already getting a little bit anxious about it. Like just even thinking of my six and nine year old. Right. <laughs> okay. But, um, I, you know, I'm here worried about like my six and nine year old. Right. Uh, granted it's a different, we don't live in like the same he was rural. Yes. Where, so Richard Branson, his mom was uh, a single mom and she worked with the airlines stewardess. So she was really trying to, to do that and build resilience in her son in case anything ever happened to her. And, and when he was four years old, I mean, four, four years old is little. Okay. When he was four years old, she stopped. And this is in rural England, like just gr- grass, nothingness. She stopped about nine miles in the car from their home and said, do you think you can find your way home from here? And he said, yeah. And she goes, okay, get out. He didn't come home for hours, for hours. It was like nine miles. But I mean, after that, he, I think he says that after that day that he's, he didn't think anything, there was nothing he didn't think he could, he couldn't do. You know what I mean? Like after that point, he was four years old. So it's just crazy to me, but yeah, it has to be a movement. It has to be a movement for, for, you know, and we, um, we try to do that with our friends and like, we're, we're lucky here that we have a good little group here on our block where we're like, we just let the kids leave. Like, I don't want to see you all day. Like just get out of the house. Like people are not, are scared to like with their kids play in the street now and, and all this stuff. So, but we've created a culture, but we've created a culture. Yeah. Which is nice. So, um, you know, our kind of our platform, we focus on, um, again, like now, now I'm kind of self-conscious of what we're, you're talking about with fragmented. Cause it's true. Like it, it, it's hard to, but at the same time, what we try to do is we try to share how all these pieces fit together. So we definitely, um, you know, we focus specifically on five pillars, you know, nutrition, fitness. We talk about parenting because it's important to maintain that autonomy with the kids as much as possible. But then again, like educate them. And then of course, education and mindset. So what I was kind of curious about is, do you have, um, like an overarching nutrition philosophy, or is that like something that you approach on a case by case basis after, for example, doing the, Oh, now I'm forgetting the Greek word that you're talking about. The, um, Pinoy. the Pinoy, like Pinoy. is, is, is that the jump off point with, you know, if you were to prescribe a, a way of eating or create a meal plan um, or, or educate them, is that what kind of leads you or, or, or is there like an overarching nutritional philosophy? Yeah, I, I can answer that with yes. One, it is 100% the way that now I'm only dealing with people in terms of how they eat is they have to do a respiratory analysis to have an understanding of how they should eat because you metabolize fat through your breath when you exhale. So most people, not all, but most people are still in some form looking at weight loss as a goal in of itself, which that's not a goal yeah. for metabolism. The metabolism just wants to be healthy and balanced but we as individuals have our own personal agendas and goals. So yes, the answer is the Pinoy is absolutely hundred percent the way to go because then you know exactly what the metabolism is looking for and how you should eat based on what your goal is. If it's fat loss, conditioning, or muscle gain. And then the overriding umbrella from there is what I call longevity programming or programming humans for longevity. And that's actually out of, 
USC here in California, their longevity institute, where they spent over two decades working on creating the first fasting mimicking diet or Dr. Walter Longo. Yeah. Longo. So the process of, of looking to shift people from any form of dieting into ideally, ideally programming them for best version of longevity is an overriding theme. And then the way they would get it done would be a combination of assessing the respiratory system via the Pinoe device analysis and getting that actual dietary analysis using that. And then depending on the person and what they're dealing with, then having them do these FMD cycles, depending on who, how, how many times they need it, a couple of times a year. And an FMD cycle is a fasting mimicking diet, five-day plant-based fast cycle. Very cool. Yeah. So back to nutrition, because um, I want to know about like your long, you know, the longer events that you do. Can you give our listeners some insight onto how you fuel for these longer events that you do? Well, I used to do, I don't do them anymore, but I used to do for, for 10 years. I, I'm one of two people in the world that did all the Discovery Channel Eco Challenges, which are these eight to 10 day nonstop, 24 hour day uh, races. I did those with my wife for a, a couple of them. Wow. And, um, I did two a year for 10 years. So that was a lot. That was 20 years, uh, 20 races in 10 years. And those were really the, the unconventional Olympics. And it was uh, four or five person co-ed, uh, a team of four or five people co-ed. You would race on non-motorized modes of transportation indigenous to the country. We raced all over the world, all over. Fiji, New Zealand, Morocco, Switzerland. Wow. All over, and each country, based on the you know on the environment and the topography, you would you use the modes of transportation that made sense for that area, right? So, if we were in Morocco, you were riding stallions and you rode camels, and you were kayaking down the coast on the Barbary Coast. You would trek and mountain bike through the Atlas Mountains up to fourteen thousand feet. If you were in Fiji, you were doing it. You know, you were in. Uh, you know, outrigger canoes and you were in sampans. You were, um, if you were in China, you were maybe inline skating and you were whitewater paddling and you were mountain biking. So it just depended on where you were. But th- those things are very specific because it changed my entire, entire reference for what it meant to move my body. It changed from exercise to literally, it was just, it was, it was a period of time in my life. So my whole year was always preparing for this seven to 10 day, 24 hour day expedition that was going to show up. And it was, it was awful because (laughs) you would knew, you knew what was coming up. You knew the course, you got the maps, you had 24 hours to plot the, the route. You know, you had the, you had your maps and you had to do the navigation and you knew exactly what was going to happen just generally. So for example, in Ecuador during one of the races, we knew we were going to climb Cotopaxi, which is a 6,000 meter alpine climb on rope teams on the glacier. We knew we had to, we knew we had to paddle over like 150 miles down the coast in open sea kayaks. We knew we had to ride horses across the Pampas. We knew we had a mountain bike for roughly 200 plus miles. All that had to be done at altitude. All that was done consecutive and all that was done nonstop. When you actually do it though, it's nothing like what you're preparing for because nothing can prepare you for it. So you you go through a process of complete, utter, like you're devastated and scared to death before you tow the line and you just get humbled and you're completely 
completely the humility you walk away with is insane. And so that, that scrubbed and scraped me across the ground and removed all ego I ever had and moved me into a mastery orientation because I was around some of the best athletes in the world and we were all together in it and you had no choice but to collaborate. I used to do a lot of team trainings in my last business and we would do corporate trainings for people and companies. And it was focused mainly on their ability to get to the point where they could experience collaboration. The challenge with collaboration when it's done in a corporate environment is every single person who is involved has to be contributing at the same percentage as everybody else. And generally that's not the case. So in the corporate environment, most people don't ever get to truly experience collaboration, which they're desperate for and they'll pay for it, but they can't get it because everyone's not willing to give that hundred percent all at the same time. So in those races, what you, what we would work at and what I was always longing for, which I actually never even achieved was I wanted just to be able to have that true hundred percent collaboration. And so we never found it every year. We would change the teams up because each person, there was some dynamic that just didn't work. And the teams that did really well, there was only a couple of them. They never changed team members. They managed with what they had. Even if there was things that they didn't like about individuals, they, they kept it together because they actually then could have true collaboration. So the couple of times I did experience it, the only times were actually with non-Americans. They were with people that were born and raised in the South Island of New Zealand. And the Kiwis taught me the true meaning of teamwork, not the military, not my education, none of my, none of my other experience, zero. The worst people in collaboration were the military. <laughs> Only people that actually truly collaborated were the Kiwis. And wow. it was like this. It was very simple. Here's how it went. If there was five of us on a team, my role as an individual was to only, only take care of the other four people. Everybody else's role was the same. Their role was yeah. to only take care of the other four people. So when you could actually get to the point where all people on the team could literally feel safe, secure, solid, connected, that the other four people genuinely, truly were interested in only your best interest, the freedom that that represented and what it was like to experience that was if I could package that in a bottle, that would, that would, that would win above Richard Branson's economic success because that experience, there's nothing like that unless you've tasted that and had that. And I've only had that twice in those races. And from that point forward, everything I did redefined it. So I, I couldn't go back after that. So anything that I would do with people in movement and athleticism with sport with their function and health, whatever you want to, whatever the category was, I would always skew them to just have some connection towards what it means to just really have connection and intimacy. Cause that's all it is. Really what I was seeking was vulnerability. I wanted to be vulnerable enough that I could be exposed. Mm-hmm. I needed to feel safe enough in a position in a, in some point where I could do it. And I needed to not be judged on the other end, which was right. what was devastating. How could the world-class endurance athlete, Tony Molino, the recon Marine, Gulf veteran, right, whatever, whatever, right. now I'm here, I'm, I'm throwing up, I have, I have trench foot on my, my blisters, I, I'm, being, I'm being towed up yeah. a hill on a leash by a guy from New Zealand who's a carpenter, and I'm useless. 
Yeah. And, and then to not be judged. Right. And then 24 hours later to be in the same position doing it for him. That's collaboration. I see wow. what you're saying when you talk about, well, first of all, uh, that is, I can't think of a better way to get away from the ego and to get to that other path, that mastery path that you talk about. But I see now why you look at things the way that you do, because, um, you know, it's, it's just not how we look at things. Like we've talked about managed care, but it's the same approach with fitness and nutrition. We have that same, you know, er, you know, everything's a nail when you're a hammer, you know, like, like managing the system, managing this and doing this. And then, um, and at the risk of sounding like a hypocrite asking this question now, <laughs> because we're still, you know, culturally, we, we want to have, we want to be given a recipe. We want to be given a list of things. I, I'm curious, you know, what you would say to someone, let's say this person's not, um, you know, they don't have any of these races planned, but what are some things that, that people can do, you know, like some habits that people can start to cultivate to help them over time, get away from their ego, open up, become more vulnerable, are there any things that people can do, you know, on a daily basis, like uh, some practices that, that people can incorporate to, to kind of get them on the way there? That's a great question. There's so many ways to answer it. My first thought was I, it made me think of our innate needs as humans. And I would say that that would be probably a good starting point for most people is just to, they don't need anything new to do. There's way too many things we can do and systemize and utilize and all things have there's a lot of efficacy and benefit to a lot of different practices and things you can do. I would say, again, we get back to the basics of it is, you know, how much is that individual managing? You know, what, what are they actually managing and how, how do they feel about themselves? How, how well do they rest at night? Can they just sleep at night feeling, you know, comfortable? Most people don't, they're managing something. Well, what if we could just maybe start there? So I would say, the answer is the habit would be to understand what it means to be human again. And <laughs> to do that, you need to do a little inventory to understand what it is. So I'm going to go over right now. And the list is this, our needs emotionally, sorry, our needs are, there's about 10 of them and they're, uh, they're emotional needs. There's security. There's autonomy and attention. There's intimacy and community. There's status within our communities. There's achievement and competence. There's privacy and there's meaning and purpose. These are what are our actual human needs. These are the needs we yeah. need to get fulfilled. If we don't have them fulfilled in some form, shape, or fashion, then we start to medicate. We start to figure out our triage in our life. So that makes sense. We're just human. Remember, we're just animals. We might have a big old prefrontal cortex, but we're yeah. still just reptilian brain yeah. running around now. We forget that all the time. That's why it's good to take the shoes off and just touch the earth and lay down chest first in the sand every now and then. Yeah. The next part is to understand that you, that people already have in them built in human resources, our tools that are designed and developed for us to, to match the needs that we have. And those are our emotions and instincts our empathy, our memory, our imagination, our pattern matching, our reason, our enhanced awareness, and our ability to dream. Those are our innate resources. 
So I would say the habit that we would have, we could say that people could start with is to do that inventory and get a checklist of, well, what needs am I not getting met? And then get reconnected with, well, I've already got these tools that are innately designed in me. They're already there and write them up and then see, well, maybe I need to start working in that area. For example, maybe somebody just doesn't have enough empathy. And that's a, that's an innate resource that that person has. And because they don't have the empathy, they're dealing with something within their, their actual needs, whatever that is, whatever they're dealing with. Maybe it's intimacy, let's say. So they can handle their intimacy need once they focus on their actual innate resource that they just kind of almost forgot about. It's like a lazy muscle. So you can just start to activate it again. So I would say that's that side of the house. The next side of the house, I would say, and the the two thoughts I'm thinking already are, one would just be to deal with temperature. It's so simple. You can use a shower. You can use the sun, right? So let's say you live in the Midwest and you don't have a lot of access to the sun. Well, then you might need a red light therapy panel. Now we get into economics. So you can get a small handheld red light, uh, handheld wand for a couple hundred dollars. Maybe that's a way to get to start to use temperature. So the way you would use temperature is you could start with a hot, cold contrast shower. That's a great start for people. Yeah. They would do 20 seconds of hot, as hot as they can handle, and 10 seconds of cold, as cold as it gets. And they would do 10 rounds back to back. That's the start of connection with their instinctive survival again to get, re, re, to get reacquainted with their innate resources they have available. Just a simple hot, cold contrast shower. Most people are going to have a hard time because they have to deal with the discomfort. And that's when you're getting back to dealing with your innate needs. Well, what does it really mean for you to be uncomfortable? What does discomfort you know, mean to you? Well, maybe you want to jot that down. Now you're starting to journal yeah. and you're starting to make a gain. You're almost doing your own really self-therapy, really, because you're getting access to your instinctive primitive you know, capacity again. So I would say those two ways would be a great way to start. Temperature is a good way to, for people to begin this rejuvenation renaissance and reconnection with their innate needs and the innate resources they already have available within them. I love that. I'm going to write all those down. That's going to be love, audio clip for sure. <laughs> well, I also just love the, just the steps, you know, like practical steps that, that um, I can, you know, work into my life. So I really, really appreciate that. Tell, wait, first, before you ask him a question, tell him the, what you were laughing, why you were laughing when he was talking about empathy. <laughs> <laughs> I was, I was just laughing that you picked that one because it's a running joke around here that Danny, Danny lacks a little bit of empathy, but it's also confirmed in his genetics because we did our genetics and I was cracking up because I was there reading. <laughs> I was, I would always joke with him. I'm like, Danny, we're all just lucky. You're a really happy guy. <laughs> Cause you're just like one one uh screw loose away from yeah. being like borderline no empathy but then i was we got our genetics tested and i was scrolling through it and it literally said one of my gene, snips yeah one of his snips was like this gene is associated with the lack of empathy and i was just we were just cracking up but I that's okay I yes and we all have our stuff like oh my gosh i have the genetic predisposition to be so stressed out all the time so that's something that i'm going to be focusing on because when you were ta- speaking about that i'm like yeah well that's definitely me and then i'm sure like the growing up like my mom oh, yeah. <laughs> passing it down to me as well like on top of the genetics it's just 
So, wow, this has been great. We could sit here and talk about this stuff all day. We love talking about this. Thank you so much for coming on and just giving us all this wisdom. Um, if you want to share, you know, anything that you're currently working on, where people can find out more about you online or, or anything, if they want to connect and see what you're up to. You know, I actually don't, um, for the first time in my life, I, I'm not really pushing anything. Uh, I'm I just working on, the, I'm working on the human condition. I am, I am working on my first book. It's actually done, but I'm not pushing any books. I'm just, I'm doing this book because I, I understand that I've been doing this most of my life and I didn't really understand really what I was doing, even though I was doing it. I was kind of just indirectly going towards what I was directly doing now. So um, anyway, yeah, I, I work with people individually out of my life lab in Santa Monica and I choose who I'm going to work with because I, I, I want to make sure that I protect myself and take care of myself. Of course. And, um, and yeah, and this is a, this is, you know, all these things should be available for people. Like a lot of the modalities I work with, they're like thousands of dollars and it'd be great if they were just available at, you know, at the, at the train stop and the bus stop and people could access these things and just, you know, start to feel good and not have all these situational conditions that people are managing. So anyway, there's a lot that we have to do here still. Love that. Well, man, uh, totally agree with Maura. Like, uh, I just love, it's a fresh perspective. Like we had, we had a bunch of questions there and, and I was like, I was just going with the conversation yeah. because we were, we were going in a whole different direction. We didn't know you that well. So, um, really appreciate you coming on. Um, please let us know about the book cause we, we definitely love to read it and we'd love to share it with our audience. And, uh, again, thank you so much for, for coming on. Okay, cool. Thank you for having me. We're going to take a minute right now to tell you about one of our amazing sponsors, Santa Cruz Medicinals. Santa Cruz Medicinals is a company that we've been using for years now. They make high potency, high quality, lab tested CBD formulas at an affordable price. They offer ketogenic, paleo, gluten free, sugar free, lab tested formulas. You all may remember when we did our cannabis series last year. One of the things we learned with CBD is that the research is pretty clear on dosage. 5 to 20 grams per kilogram is what you should be taking per day. And most of the quote-unquote CBD you see online and on Amazon is severely underdosed. Most of these products are offering dosages that are so low, you'd have to down a bottle a day. <laughs> That's why we love Santa Cruz Medicinals because they offer highly dosed, potent CBD with clean ingredients, and they have several cool products. But we want to share our favorites with you. So what are your favorites, my love? Um, all of them? <laughs> no, really. I have yet to try a product from them that I don't love. However, I will talk about some of my ride or die products. So during my cycle, I get horrible migraines, guys. And my go-to is definitely their peppermint tincture or the 10,000 um, milligrams to get a potent anti-inflammatory dose. Uh, peppermint has been shown in studies to relieve migraine pain. But let's talk about the pain solve real quick because this I use for almost everything. And everyone in this household agrees we cannot live without it. So the CBD pain salve, it has clean ingredients that you can trust, but it also has peppermint, which really, really helps. And so what I like to do is I'll rub some on my temples and it really provides instant relief for me when I have bad headaches. But of course, I'll use it as well for any muscle pain that I have. Well, I'm personally a huge fan of the 10,000 milligram bottles of CBD in MCT oil. I put it in my coffee and then again at night, I'll, I'll put some more in like some broth or whatever drink I'm drinking, a hot tea uh, to get an adequate dose for the day. I also love the pain salve, especially when I'm extra sore. We usually take turns massaging it onto each other. 
and it always does the job. You guys also have to try the new CBD infused hemp and collagen protein. If you're a fan of horchata, you will love this one. Oh, that one is so good, guys. We just tried it and it is so good. Um, so yeah, if you're interested, check them out. You can find them at scmedicinals.com. And of course, don't forget to use the code FATFIELDMOM at checkout to save 15% on your order and get free shipping, guys.